0: Good morning. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to join me in opening it to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. If you're using a blue pew Bible, it's page 724. It's been a great start to the Advent uh, season here at Grace. Uh, This past week we had a couple um, events that we held, both downstairs in Fellowship Hall, we had uh, our bi-monthly corporate worship and prayer service, where we did an Advent-themed prayer journey, very um, quiet, very contemplative, uh, then ushering into a time of corporate prayer, a pretty uh, powerful night. And then, um, and then Saturday, we had yesterday, we had Coco and caroling which was the exact opposite tone of Wednesday night, but just as, I think, powerful and great uh, with just um, uh, downstairs filled with um, families and singles and all in between Body of Grace Church just singing together. Uh, Getting all sugared up on all kinds of uh, treats, and Megan and her whole accompaniment accompaniment team that was not invited to be part of uh, did a great job leading us in singing, Um, and that was a good call. They did not invite me to be part of that, but uh, enjoyed that with with our family as well. And um, speaking of singing, uh, you might be familiar with the name Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley, he is the less famous Wesley, his brother John was an 18th century preacher who traveled between England and the colonies here. He's the founder of Methodism, which sprang out the Methodist denomination. Uh, But Charles' brother was also a preacher, but he became more well-known for his songwriting, for writing hymns. Uh, It's estimated in his life he wrote about 6,000 of them, um, many of which are still regularly sung today. Uh, The most familiar of his hymns that you would probably recognize if you have some experience in church is... Uh, especially in this season, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, written by Charles Wesley. You have Christ the Lord is Risen Today, Um, you know, that song that pretty much every church has sang to start their Easter service for the last 300 years. But in terms of uh, lyrics, in terms of meaning, my favorite Charles Wesley hymn is one that I think is familiar, but probably a little less known. In terms of popularity, it would be like a B-list hymn in the church. And the hymn is this, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Wesley wrote it in 1744. And typically when we sing Christmas hymns, we do so with smile on our faces and it's a jolly good time. Um, But there are many Advent songs, including this one, that was written from a place of pain. From a place of darkness and waiting. You see, Wesley was heavily involved in supporting orphanages in England in the 18th century, and he looked at the dire situation of all the orphaned children. It was kind of an epidemic at this point in history, middle of the 18th century, and he was overwhelmed with what to do. Strong believer, preacher, songwriter, was overwhelmed with. Pain of how to address this situation that he was involved in, and, and what added to the pain was that Great Britain at this time, had a pretty significant divisions of economic classes, and it seemed that the most wealthy classes in Britain had the least care for the orphans, the ones who could do the most were doing the least, and so he was overwhelmed. And so he publishes this prayer, a prayer that he eventually turns into a song, which is now this familiar Christmas hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Here's the first verse. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, born to set Thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in Thee. You know, it's a song that we sing often at Advent in relation to Jesus' first coming, but it was a song like many of these Advent songs that were written really primarily to think about Jesus' second coming. But either way, it's a song about waiting, waiting for peace, waiting for some resolution, waiting for things to be made right. And in that way, it's very much an Advent song. And as we stand today in the second week of our series on the virtue of peace, we're reminded, again, as the video shows us coming into each of these sermons, that Advent is always a dual purpose for the church today. And it's, it's yes, to anticipate, to in a sense reenact the, the anticipation of the coming of a king born in a manger, but we stand in redemptive history in this time, in the already not yet, which we talked about last week. Jesus has already come and delivered his people from sin, but he has not yet come and returned to be the king who will rule and reign fully over his Kingdom. And so, Advent, whether you're talking about Israel or you're talking about the church, is very much about waiting. And not only that, but waiting in the dark. Waiting for full and final peace. And when it comes to waiting, no matter where you stand in relation to Jesus or your relationship with Him or religion in general, we can all resonate with the idea of waiting. Every single day of our lives includes, on some level, waiting. We spend way more time than we like to admit waiting for things. From the daily monotonous things to the kind of really big life questions. But you wait in traffic on the way to work. And if you say, I'm not going to drive to work, I'm going to take the train. You're going to wait for the train to show up. And you're going to wait for your packages to be delivered from Cyber Monday And you're going to wait for your kids to fall asleep. Dear Jesus, please let them fall (laughs) asleep. And we wait a long time for that. Waiting is a part of everyday life. But we can also resonate, some more than others, with this kind of lifelong waiting in the dark. This long-term, gut-wrenching waiting, so to speak. The kind of gut-wrenching waiting that drove Charles Wesley in the state of the orphans and, and orphanages and England, to to write a prayer that went into a song. And so I wonder this morning, as I look around this room during this season, what are you waiting for? Church, what are you waiting for? See, there's a waiting that can be rooted in doubt. There's a waiting in the dark that has no real hope attached to it. But then there's a waiting in the dark that is rooted in faith, the kind of waiting that has your eyes set on the eastern sky, waiting for the dawning of light. This is the Advent kind of waiting. And this is the kind of waiting that is seen all throughout Scripture. And so this morning, we're going to dig into an Old Testament passage where you're going to wonder as we go, what the heck does this have to do with Advent? But I want us to see, part of my aim in this series is to show you that Advent is not limited to a few characters in a few chapters in Matthew and Luke chapter 1. That Advent is very much an idea that is foundational throughout the entire Bible story, and so hang with me this morning, a heads up for those taking notes, there's no kind of clear outline points, I'm sorry uh, that there's not this morning, you're going to have to, uh, good luck taking notes this morning, that's all I'm going to say, but we are going to start in Ezekiel, and then we're going to kind of trace this idea of waiting through, and then at the end, connect it to Advent, connect it to our lives today, All right. so Ezekiel 37, we're going to start with verses 1 through 3. Chances are, if you are familiar with the Bible, when you think of the book of Ezekiel, this is one of the passages that comes to mind. It is the valley of dry bones. But, but I want to very quickly, and see if I can pull this off, I want to very quickly catch us up as to where this passage lands in the big story of the Bible. So last week, if you were here, we were early in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We saw the need, why there's a need for peace in the first place. Everybody wants peace. We all know we don't have it. Why don't we have it? The Bible tells us right in the very beginning how sin, the act of choosing self-glory over God's glory that Adam and Eve were guilty of, that we are all guilty of, led to a breaking of peace, It led to a breaking of harmony in creation, the breaking of shalom. And from that moment, the Bible sets on this course of telling the single story of how God is redeeming and restoring peace, or shalom in all of creation. If you have anybody in your lives who are not believers, they want to know, what's the Bible about? Tell me about the Bible. Here it is in one sentence. It's the single story of how God is redeeming and restoring his creation back to where it first was. And Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, and there was the curse of the fall. But then we saw in that same scene, God gave a promise. In the midst of the curse, he gave a promise that that he will restore creation through an offspring of the woman. And from there, the family line gets traced to a man named Abraham, who was made another promise by God that all the nations of the world were going to be blessed through his family line. And then we start seeing the generations pile up. That family becomes a nation. The nation of Israel, which God leads out of slavery into the promised land through Moses and Joshua. And throughout the Old Testament, there is a recurring, recurring, recurring theme of God being faithful to his promise, despite his people being unfaithful back to him. So God's presence with them is through a a tabernacle, which would become uh, the temple, um, because remember sacrifices need to be made, because that's the only way a holy God can dwell amongst an unholy people, through a sacrifice to atone for their sin, and then Israel goes through a period of judges, a dark time in its history. And then it goes through a series of kings where the nation of Israel splits into two because there's such disunity amongst the royal family line. And there's a northern kingdom that retains the name Israel. There's a southern kingdom that retains the name Judah. And God sends all these prophets to these two nations to warn them that they do not repent of their sin. If they not return back to him, he's going to send them into exile where they won't have rule over their nation. They won't have a land to call their own. And... Neither kingdom repents. So first Israel, and then Judah goes into exile. That was about 1,400 years in two minutes. And there is the parallels to Genesis 3. There is clear disobedience to God's word that leads to a nation being banished from its land, just like Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. And with that backdrop, in steps Ezekiel. He is a prophet sent to speak to the nation of Judah while they are in exile. And if you have tried studying through verse by verse the book of Ezekiel, it is a relentless book. It is a many times a very difficult read, not difficult to understand necessarily, but difficult to hear and see. And it's a scathing indictment on Judah's disobedience and, and, and the defaming of the name of God. It's, it's, remember last week we read those verses in Genesis 3 of the cursing on Adam and Eve? It's basically that but 35 chapters worth. And then you get to Ezekiel 36 and everything turns. And God says through Ezekiel, tell the nation of Israel I'm about to act and I will vindicate the holiness of my name And I will give them a new heart and I will gather them from exile and I will bring you back. And it's a stunning turn and it's purely owed to God's grace. And what happens in Ezekiel 36 is that he says he will remain faithful to his promise. Uh, Judah will not earn their way back. They will not figure how to get back in God's good presence. He will act alone. And so the natural next question to this Ezekiel 36 says, how is that going to happen? We just read 35 chapters of how they're, they're evil and they're disobedient and they're not listening to the name of God. How is that going to happen? Until Enter Ezekiel 37, in the Valley of Dry Bones, when God gives Ezekiel this vision and he walks him around the valley and he says, hey, I got a question, can these bones live And at this point, Judah had been in exile for 12 years. Um, I don't claim to know a lot about body decomposition, okay? So you can correct me afterwards if I need to be corrected. But I think it's safe to say, after a body is dead for 12 years, all that's left of that body is dry bones. And dry bones do not indicate that something is dying. Dry bones indicate something is dead. There's a level of hopelessness that comes with dry bones, So God's question to Ezekiel, can these bones live? If you put yourself in Ezekiel's shoes, that feels like a trick question, doesn't it? Like to his credit, Ezekiel answers by not answering. He answers by saying, God, you know. That's a brilliant answer. He could have said, I don't know. But he says, God, you know remember that next time, if it ever comes up. (laughs) Because I think if Ezekiel was forced to answer, he would say, that's impossible. Dead means dead. And when you're dead, you can't make yourself come alive. And that leads to verse 4. Let's read verses 4 through 10. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked and behold, there were sinews upon them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came unto them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This vision occurs 600 years before Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And it is the most vivid description we have in our Bible in the Old Testament of regeneration. Regeneration, the act of being made alive by the power of God through the Spirit of God. These dead bones responded to the word of the Lord, and the spirit of the Lord breathed into them, and they lived the word of God and the spirit of God. And so, um, just an obvious question as attentive people to the text what role did those bones have in becoming made alive? What credit do you give to those bones? Nothing. They merely received the word that was spoken. And they were breathed into by the Spirit of God. They did not become alive. Hear me. They were made alive. And it makes all the difference. And, and, and how did God bring this about? Again, word and spirit. He calls upon Ezekiel to deliver the word. And then the proclaimed word is the means through which God's power and spirit flows to bring about life. And you look at the story and you say, God did this. 100%. And God chose to use the ordinary obedience of Ezekiel to bring about life. So Ezekiel can't boast here. Ezekiel can't say, look what I did to this valley. He, his, just, his obedience, his ordinary obedience was used. And the space between verse 6 and verse 7 was decision time for Ezekiel. God said, prophesy over these dead, dry bones. Speak the word of the Lord. And it's a, like a dramatic pause before verse 7. And then we just read, so I did it. I prophesied as I was commanded. That is Ezekiel being faithfully obedient even in the midst of confusion. Why? Because he trusted the Lord and acted accordingly. And his obedience is the pathway through which God's power and spirit flowed. I want you to remember that. We're gonna come back to that when we connect the dots. But first, we're going to read verses 11 through 14 of this passage. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land." Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. So now God graciously reveals to Ezekiel, what the heck is he doing here? What's this whole vision about? And he says, Ezekiel, this is about Israel. These dead, dry bones represent the whole nation of Israel. Israel had been in exile at this point for 12 years because of their hardened hearts, their defaming of the name of the Lord, and their hope is lost. God told Ezekiel, they're hopeless. They thought they were cut off forever. We're dead. We're done. We lost our chance. There's no hope for me. There's no hope for us. God is against us, and there will be no peace with the Lord. And this vision goes from one of regeneration to resurrection. Did you hear it? I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. And again, in this somewhat hidden, obscure passage in the Old Testament, tucked away, we have not only one of the most vivid descriptions of regeneration, but now one of the only visions of resurrection in the Old Testament. And in prophecy, if you know your Bible, you know Old Testament prophetic literature, prophecy has what we would call a near-view, far-view fulfillment. That most prophetic statements have immediate fulfillment that is for the nation of Israel. And then a hint towards a more distant, more complete fulfillment that's coming. So in the near-view, Ezekiel is prophesying about Israel's return from exile. He says, you're going to go back to your land. And that this nation will not remain in exile forever. This, the nation will not be extinguished. God will not blot out his people. Not for their sake, but for the sake of his holy name. Because of his promise. And that would be fulfilled after 70 years. Think about this. They're in year 12. After 70 years, they will go back. They got a ways to go. But now it's a different kind of waiting. Now it's a waiting that's rooted in Faith. Now it's a waiting in the dark, looking for the light, which is great in and of itself, but there's hints of something even more than that in here. He says, I will put my spirit within you. There will be an indwelling of the spirit, which will not be true yet when Israel returns from exile. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, was present at creation, was active in the Old Testament, but did not indwell believers until after Jesus came. So near view, return from exile, far view, there's gonna be an indwelling of the Spirit. We don't know how, Ezekiel doesn't know how, but this promise is out there. But notice, after he regenerates the bones, we have a vast army standing. He says, wait for the resurrection. There's going to be a period of waiting between regeneration and resurrection. And it's a time where you're going to wait. But you're going to have to wait in faith. A kind of waiting that fuels to the brim with the promises of God. And the duration of waiting does not make God's promises any less true. It's a waiting that leads to active obedience, as Ezekiel showed himself. All right. Now, hopefully, you're thinking, I thought this was an Advent series. What's this history lesson with Israel have to do with Advent? I'm just glad you asked. You guys ask great questions all the time. Great questions. If you have your Bible open still, go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, it's page 855 of Blue Pew Bible. Now we're in familiar terrain with Advent. You guys know this story well. There's an angel named Gabriel. He appears to his teenage girl named Mary. Mary is engaged, but not yet married. And Gabriel has some news. But now listen to this passage in light of what we just read in Ezekiel 37. Luke chapter 1, verse 30 to 38. And the angel said to her, "'Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. "'And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, "'and you shall call his name Jesus.'" There's a lot of crossover there. I don't even have time to cover it all. I had to cut some out. But how about verse 37 to start there? For nothing will be impossible with God. God said to Ezekiel, Hey, uh, can these dead bones live? Is that impossible? For you, Ezekiel, yeah, but not for me. Mary says to the angel, How can this be? How can I be pregnant when I am a virgin? Isn't that impossible for you, Mary? Yeah, but nothing will be impossible for God. And then in this passage, you see the same combination of word and spirit, that the spirit comes upon Mary and she responds. And her response is, I am a servant of the Lord. I am confused. I'm in the dark here, but let it be according to your word. There is the faithful obedience we saw in Ezekiel, the faithful obedience we see in Mary, a willingness to submit to God's word, even though we don't know completely how this is going to play out, but she obeys, not because she knows everything in the future, but she obeys because she trusts the Lord. You know, I find it interesting around Christmas time, we always picture Mary as this innocent, kind of weak, passive girl, and that's often how she's depicted in Christmas stories, in children's books. Have you ever wondered the strength it took to be obedient to God's word here? If Mary would be accused of adultery because she's pregnant and not married, she would be stoned. If she wasn't accused of adultery, but just merely abandoned and divorced because you had to get divorced from an engagement just like a marriage in the first century, which, by the way, Joseph was planning to do. I don't want her to get stoned, but this isn't going to work out. I'll divorce her quietly. If that happened, she would have no rights. She would likely find no one else who would marry her, rendering her an unwed, single mother in first century Palestine virtually helpless. And so the path For Mary was so unknown in this moment, and in the unknown, by faith, she says, Lord, it's the most powerful verse, I think, in the Christmas story, Lord, let it be according to your word. And her obedience is the pathway through which God's power and spirit flowed. Mary would see it through, and she would give birth to Jesus, the Son of God. And this Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of Ezekiel 37 or, or the means through which God brings dead bones to life. Jesus coming in and living this life we could not live, that, that Ezekiel couldn't even live perfectly, that even Mary could not even live perfectly, but he lives not just in faithful obedience, but in perfect obedience. And his death on the cross enables regeneration. And his rising from the grave enables resurrection. I wonder if it's this passage in Ezekiel 37 that the Apostle Paul had in mind when he penned these words to the church at Ephesus. It'll be on the screen, Ephesus 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The heart of the gospel is not men and women becoming made alive by the way they live. It's not a certain kind of life. It's not the things they do. It's not being a good guy or a good woman. For nothing can bring about salvation in and of ourselves and the word picture we're given in the Bible is that a man or woman cannot earn their way to salvation any more than a pile of dead dry bones can make itself come alive and in this way Christians are not boastful in themselves or at least we shouldn't be we're doing something wrong if we are we're not arrogant about our faith like look what we figured out look what we discovered but we are humbled by the fact that when we were dead, not dying, dead, God proclaimed his word to us through someone at some point and by his grace, we were made alive by the Holy Spirit to repent of our sin and trust solely in Jesus Christ. This is salvation. This is the call in everyone's life to turn and believe and this is what brings true inner peace. Peace. Paul would say in Galatians 3, let the peace of Christ, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And yet, just like the vision in Ezekiel 37, we still wait, don't we? There's a period of waiting between regeneration and final resurrection. We experience inner peace while waiting for final peace and where we are in this already, not yet, part of redemptive history, we still Advent. And, and for many, it is a waiting in the dark. But it's a waiting that is rooted in faith. And so now I ask the same question I asked at the beginning, now near the end. Church, what are you waiting for this morning? Is your waiting rooted in faith? Where we can say alongside Ezekiel, alongside Mary to the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Some of you think your situation will never change. You think it'd be nice if it would, but in reality, you don't believe it. That you can't change. That your boss can't change. Or your children. Or your spouse. That situation you have in your mind right now, that it can't change. It's been too long. It feels too hopeless. And I ask you, and I don't ask lightly can you give it to the Lord this morning? Right now? Can you completely and fully believe that He will provide you the peace made available in the waiting? This is what fuels faith. And this is what fuels faithful obedience. This is the kind of waiting where you receive the strength to do the work God has placed before you to make this world a better place. You know, the end of that passage in Ephesians where Paul proclaims, for we who are in Christ have been made alive. He goes on to say at the end of that passage that our waiting is not passive. We're not just sitting and waiting. He goes, our waiting is active, and he writes this in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the encouragement to us as a church is to keep walking as you wait. There's work to be done in the waiting, even when we're waiting in the dark for final resurrection. And we're all going to wait in this life. And certain circumstances, as I just look across the room, I know are far more agonizing than others, but if we li- all live long enough, we're going to have some gut-wrenching times of waiting in our life. And the question will always be, will our waiting be rooted in faith or in doubt? How can you tell the difference? Well, a waiting in doubt is going to shut you down. It's going to make you bitter. It's going to make you angry but a waiting in faith is going to start stirring things up. It's going to start putting your longing and your eyes fixed on the sure return of Jesus, and that hope equips you and will equip you to rest in his salvation and then keep walking as you wait. And keep caring and keep loving and keep your eyes on other people and keep making a difference doing your part to impact this world. Charles Wesley wrote the song, Come Thou Long, expected Jesus, longing for his return. There was work to be done in the waiting, however. And for him, it was caring for orphans that were all around him and starting and strengthening orphanages to take care of them. And his fuel for that work was rooted in the guaranteed return of the king of which he rested in and then got to work. This is how the song ends. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Waiting for peace regeneration, and resurrection. We have been made alive in Christ. And we will be raised with Christ.